Well, this is now our third week in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And let's begin again this morning by reading that text. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, I called today's message the building of the church, and we're going to focus on verse 18. Again, Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The last two weeks we've been looking and focused on the question, who is Jesus Christ? And now our focus is going to shift on onto what is this Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to do? And there's always a connection, isn't there, between who somebody is and what they'll do, what they do. There, there, there's all the more the, the, in the, the case here where we have seen who this Jesus is. He is the Christ in Greek. He is the Messiah in Hebrew. He is the son of the living God. He is God the son incarnate, God the son who took on human flesh, who took upon himself a fully human nature in order to accomplish something in order to be the Messiah and save his people from their sins. And so these past two weeks, we've been focusing and, and seeing who Jesus is in all of his majesty and splendor. And we've seen that he's both God and man. He is son of God, son of man. And now that we know who he is, we can begin to see what he will do. And as we get into this today, it's going to be important for us to, to see the connections that exist in this text. We should be careful not to overly separate the elements here, even though we're, we're really going to just focus on verse 18. Who Jesus is is connected to what he will do. He's going to build a church. He's going to build his church. But there's also something here about Peter. Peter has rightly identified Jesus. Peter has confessed Christ. And now Jesus is going to tell us something about Peter. But it's not as though Peter can be separated from the context. He is, he is here Peter. He is Peter who rightly sees Jesus for who he is. He is Peter the confessor. Peter who is blessed because the Father has revealed Christ to him. And it is this Peter who is the rock upon whom Jesus will build his church and to whom he will give the keys of the kingdom. 
And I hope as we kind of go through this and look at this more and more, it's going to make more sense and we're going to understand Peter's role really in light of the whole context here. But let me give you, as we kind of get into this, let me give you the outline of this section. There's three main sections here, and each begins with Jesus' words. So in verse 13, Jesus asks, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And the disciples answer. And so there's an introduction, the beginning of verse 13, then there's a, a question from Jesus, and the disciples answer. Then second section Another question from Jesus, verse 15, he asks, but who do you say that I am? And this time, Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then the third section, Jesus doesn't ask a question now, but Jesus is answering Simon. And this this final third section can be divided into three sections. And so the first of this final third section in verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so Jesus pronounced Simon blessed, and then he explains that flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but the Father in heaven. And so we have a a positive and a negative. It's not from flesh and blood, but it's from the revelation of the Father. And then second, in verse 18, Simon Peter had just told Jesus who he was, He said, you are the Christ. Now Jesus is going to tell Simon who he is in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Jesus says, you are Peter, which means rock. And then he makes a a positive statement. I will build my church, followed by a negative statement. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then the third section is, I will give you the keys. And again, there's a positive and a negative. There's binding and there's loosing. And then there's a conclusion, just like there was an introduction. And that's kind of the three sections of three. And the final third has three sections. But what I really want you to see at this point is that Simon Peter made a statement about who Jesus is. And in return, Jesus makes a statement about who Peter is. Peter says in verse 16, you are, Jesus says in verse 18, and I tell you, you are. And we're going to look at verse 18. We already looked at verses 13 to 17, but at at some point we might come back and, and cover a little bit more in verse 17. But really today we're just going to focus on verse 18. Now even... Though Jesus tells Peter who he is, who Peter is, it's, it's not really about Peter here. This is, this is really about what Jesus will do. And so it's going to be something that he's going to do through Peter and on Peter, but it's really about the Lord Jesus Christ. He will build his church and he's going to build it on the rock, whatever that rock is. And it's going to be the foundation on which Jesus builds his church. And so Jesus and the church that he is going to build are really the focus of our text. And what we're going to see as we get into this in verse 18 is we're going to see four astonishing realities about the church. Four astonishing realities. There's actually, I've got five of them, but we're not going to make it through all five today. And so we'll we'll have to kind of figure out something different for next week. But four astonishing realities 
about the church. And these really, as we think about how this should apply to us today, these should really move us and motivate us. You see, we've seen the greatness of Christ, and now we see his great purpose in the world. Here's what the Lord Jesus Christ is up to even now. He is building his church. And like Peter, we also have a part in it. We can serve and work together with the Lord Jesus Christ in what he is doing in building this church. And so if we truly understand this text, it really has the potential to change our lives and reorient our lives around what is truly eternal and consequential. See, this text shows us what heaven is doing on the earth. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working on earth to build this one institution, the church. Their dwelling is in heaven, but their work is really on the earth, and it starts, and and this is really surprising, it starts with Peter. And so let's see, first of all, let's see number one in our outline, the foundation of the church in the first part of verse 18. Now, I've divided the the verse 18 into five sections in your outline, A to E. I don't know if you see that there, but the first section, A, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, that's that's the first section, that's number one, the foundation of the church. And then the second section, we're going to look at the builder of the church, and we're drawing that from what I have labeled there as B, where Jesus just says, I. So twice there he says, I, I tell you and I. And so we're going to look at the builder of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, we're going to look at the nature of the church, the nature of the church. And that's in D in the text where he says, I will build, and he says, my church. And so we're going to look at what is this church that he's going to build? What is my church? And then we're going to see fourth and finally for today, we're going to see fourth, the victory of the church. And we're going to get that from what's labeled there. See, I will build. Jesus is going to build. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in both of those, the positive and the negative, we see the victory of the church. And then next time, and I don't know how we'll we'll work it out next time, but we're going to see the keys of the church or the keys of the kingdom in verse 19. But let's get into this then. Number one, the foundation of the church Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock. And the first thing I need to say here is that the Roman Catholics have really made Protestants afraid of this verse. The Catholic Church draws from this verse and draws from verse 19 that the church is built on Peter in this sense that they say Peter is the first pope. He is the first human head of the church. And because Peter ended his ministry in Rome, he is seen as the first Roman bishop, the first in a long line of Roman bishops or popes. And they understand verse 19 to mean that whatever Peter or whatever his successors decide has its source in heaven. And so they say that anything not built on Peter or his successors in Rome is not the church that Christ is building. And so that they can say that the only true church is the Roman Catholic church. Now, of course, this verse says nothing about Peter's successors or about Peter speaking infallibly or about his successors speaking infallibly. But to distance themselves from this view, many Protestants have have really shied away from seeing Peter as the rock, at least in, in former times. And so they've interpreted this rock 
as something other than Peter. This rock maybe as Peter's confession about the Christ or the rock being Christ himself or as Jesus teaching, uh, Jesus' teaching rather than as Peter. And so let's look at this. Again, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Now, notice Peter's name earlier in this section. In verse 16, he is Simon Peter. In verse 17, he is Simon Barjona, which is Aramaic. It's Simon, son of Jonah. And so his name, Peter's name, is, is really Simon. And if you flip back to chapter 10 and look at verse uh, 2, these or the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and, and so on. And so his name is Simon, but he's called Peter. And notice here, this, we'll come back to this later, but notice in, in verse 2, Simon Peter, Simon who is called Peter, comes first. And so his name is Simon, but he's called Peter. Go back again to chapter 4 and look at verse 18 there. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus that is, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And so Simon was called Peter. And if you turn to the book of John, chapter 1, and look at verse 42, John 1.42, he brought to him Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas means Peter. Cephas is Aramaic as well, and, and Cephas means stone. And so Peter and stone, that, that's the same word. Cephas is stone in Aramaic. Peter is stone in Greek. And so Jesus, right here in John 1.42, renames Simon Peter. He says, you will be called Peter. So he, Peter in Greek is the, the Greek word Petros, and it comes from Petra. Petra means rock. And Petros also means rock, but it's the masculine form. Greek has masculine and feminine nouns. Petros is the normal, Petra, sorry, Petra is the normal way to speak about a rock in Greek. For whatever reason, rocks are feminine in Greek. But Peter, of course, is a man, and so we're going to call him Petros. We're not going to give him a female name. We're going to give him a male name, and so he is Petros. Now, it seems like before Jesus named Simon Petros, it, it, that, that wasn't a name that was used in the Greek language. And so we don't see Petros, we don't see Peter until after this Peter. Jesus really gives him a nickname here, and he calls him a rock. And he did that already in John 1.42. You will be called a rock. But in our verse, in Matthew 16, Jesus now says, you are rock. You are rock. Simon, son of Jonah, is rock. And on this rock, Jesus will build. And the Greek word for rock in the second part of our verse here, are you back in Matthew chapter 16? The Greek word for rock is the more common now feminine name. So you are, 
you are Petros, but, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, because of the different Greek words, because there's the masculine and then the feminine, some people say that, that this rock must refer to something other than Peter. And so some say it refers to Peter's confession of Christ. And it's true that the church is going to be founded on a true confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true. But others say that this rock refers to Christ. As though he said, you are rock, but on this rock, and then he maybe points to himself, I will build my church. And it's true, and, and we could even go and, and look at Peter's epistle and show that, that when Peter speaks about Christ as a rock, and as the chief cornerstone that the church is built upon, and so there is a, a sense in which Christ also is a rock, but if Jesus was speaking about himself or about Peter's confession, then I really think that we would need some further clue from the text. Like, as I said, we'd need a but instead of an and there, or, or some clue that this is pointing to some other rock besides Peter, who Jesus just called a rock. And if you think about it, Jesus or, or Peter has just said something about who Jesus is, and in the same way, Peter, or sorry, I'm getting myself confused here a little bit. Peter just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that was clear. And we knew that Peter was talking about Christ. And it's just as clear that Jesus is now talking about Peter when he says, and I say to you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And so the question then is, well, what does it mean that Peter is the rock upon which the church will be built. And there's a few things to say here. And first of all, let's, let's think about what it doesn't mean. Cause I think this is important. What it doesn't mean. First of all, it has nothing to do with Catholic teaching. Peter is not a pope. He has no successors. There's no mention of successors. There's nothing here about Peter being infallible. This binding and loosing we'll look at next time, but it, it doesn't at all say that Peter's infallible. In fact, in the very next verses, 21 to 23, Jesus is going to have to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. And so we, we obviously know that this has nothing to do with the, the Catholic doctrine of papal infallibility or the succession of the popes. Second, this doesn't at all preclude other foundation metaphors in Scripture. In our text, Jesus is telling Peter about his role in the foundation of the church, but other texts look more broadly. And so in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 11, Paul is a master builder, and he is building the Corinthians, and Jesus is the foundation. And so we can go to, and I'll just read for you, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11, Paul says there, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. And of course, that other person is Apollos. But let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is the builder. He's building the Corinthians. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. In Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 20, the Ephesian believers are built on the foundation and they're built on this foundation of the apostles 
and prophets. And so Paul says there, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. And so Jesus is the cornerstone there. In Revelation 21 and verse 14, the, the city has 12 foundations, and those are the, the 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. And Hebrews chapter 6, kind of speaking from a different perspective, says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. And so repentance and faith can also be seen as a foundation. So it doesn't preclude other metaphors in Scripture, even Jesus himself being the rock in other places of Scripture, the cornerstone upon which the church is built. But what does it mean then that Peter is the rock? Jesus is going to build his church on Peter. And he doesn't say here only on Peter. He's, he's speaking to Peter and he says, you are a rock and I will build my church on you. And throughout the rest of this gospel, and, and especially in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts, we see just that. Peter is always first. Peter was the first disciple called. Uh, we just saw that in chapter 4. He was called to Jesus in chapter 4. He's listed first when Jesus chooses his 12 apostles in chapter 10. He's always listed first in all the lists of the apostles throughout Scripture. He's the one who walked on water and so kind of led the way in chapter 14. He's the one that's going to speak at the transfiguration in chapter 17. He's going to play, um, he's going to play the chief role in choosing a replacement for Judas in Acts chapter 1. Peter's going to preach the first sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people are going to be added to the church. And in chapter 10 of Acts, he's going to be the first one to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and Cornelius and his household are going to be saved. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, the church in Jerusalem is going to have elders, and James, the brother of Jesus, is going to seem to play the more prominent role. And so it would seem that at least by Acts chapter 15, the foundation has been laid, and it was laid on Peter. Peter was kind of the, the first of the apostles. And the Lord built his church on Peter. Now, there, there were other people involved as well, but and this doesn't preclude them as at all. P Jesus is just talking to Peter here. And so others were very much involved, but the Lord is making here a promise to Peter. And, and we should note as we think about the implications of this, that other apostles likely heard this and, and they didn't think that Peter was above them. In fact, in chapter 18, they're going to argue about which of them will be the greatest. And, and it doesn't seem that, that any of them kind of go back and say, well, Jesus said that Peter was the rock upon which the church is going to be built. built. And, and again, they're going to argue again about who is the greatest in chapter 20. And so none of the apostles heard this and thought that Peter was the only foundation of the church or that he was somehow above them. And yet Jesus is here telling him that he's going to build his church on him. He's going to, he's going to do something unique with Peter as the foundation of the church. And again, I think the answer to that is we see that lived out in the book of Acts where Peter is first in all of these things. 
Now, we're going to come back to this a little bit later as we build on this, but this is really truly astonishing if you think about it. Peter is a fallible human being like us. He was a sinner, probably here born again already, but still he had the remaining corruption of the flesh. He had human weakness. He was a man. He was, in fact, in chapter 14 and 15, he was just of little faith. He was, oh, you of little faith. And yet here the Lord says, I will build my church on you. You are rock and I will build my church on this rock. And I think as we think about Peter and then we think about ourselves, this should greatly encourage us as well. But for now, let's move on and let's go to number two. And let's look again at the builder of the church and the second part, what I labeled B. And we're drawing this from this, we're drawing this heading from the word I in verse 18. In fact, we see it twice there. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And what we can do here is we can get so focused on Peter that we miss really the, that the real hero is the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the one here who renamed Simon to Peter. This is the, like those famous renamings in the Old Testament where Abraham, Abraham becomes Abraham and Sarai becomes Sarah and Jacob becomes Israel. Simon becomes Peter. And Jesus says, whatever you were before, you are now a rock and I will build my church on you. And so Jesus is confident in his ability to work through Peter. And whether we view Jesus according to his humanity here or whether we view him according to his divine nature, it really doesn't matter very much. Either way, however we look at this, it is remarkable. Jesus declares what he will do through Peter and on Peter. And so nothing will stop Jesus, not even Peter. Not Peter, not other men, not Satan, not the gates of Hades. Nothing will stop the Lord Jesus Christ from his purpose that he declares here, I will build my church. Jesus tells Peter who he is. You are a rock. Jesus tells Peter what he will do. I will build my church. And so I want you to see here the power of Jesus Christ. He has a a power that is in conjunction with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it's the power to change a man like Peter or like you or like me and make us, make him or her useful to God. That is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it starts really in verse 17 where Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so the Father revealed Jesus Christ to Peter. This is where the Lord's power starts. This is where his confidence comes from, that there's been this revelation of Christ to Peter. And it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed this. It was not Peter or any human work. The Father showed Jesus to Peter. And we've seen this already in Matthew chapter 11. Turn back to Matthew 11. Look at verse really 25 to 27 here. Matthew eleven twenty five. at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
The wise and understanding, they could not recognize Christ. The Father hid Christ from them. Even though he was right there in front of them doing miracles, they didn't understand him. They didn't come to know him. And yet, on the other hand, the Father revealed Christ to little children, and it's according to his gracious will. And of course, the little children there were the disciples. And then the Son says in verse 27 that he has a similar role in revealing the Father. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus then invites those who would come to him to take his yoke and become disciples of his. And what I want you to see is that on the basis of this revealing work, Jesus can confidently say to Peter, you are a changed man and I will build on you. And so this revealing is really a salvific work and, and therefore it results in one becoming like Christ and one becoming useful to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. As we think about this, this kind of revealing of Christ, and we, we talked about this already in our first message in this series, this subjective element of, of recognizing Christ for who he is. But 2 Corinthians 3.17 kind of shows us this. It says there, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. You see what's happening there? Beholding the son because the Father has revealed the Son to us, it, it results in us being transformed into the same image of the Son, and this transformation happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord has power to change us and to make us like He is and to work His eternal purposes then through us. And so the Lord Jesus has no doubt of what He is going to be able to do in and through Peter. And so we see here under this heading, this builder of the church, that our great Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who came to save his people from their sins, that, that he is powerful to accomplish his purposes through his redeemed people. And so he is the builder of the church. And so let's go now and let's think about this church that he's going to build. What is this church. And so let's talk about the nature of the church. And this is really in the, the final, um, or not the final part, but in, in what I labeled D, the nature of the church. Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so what is this church that Jesus says is my church? Well, in the New Testament, this is the first mention of the church, Matthew chapter 16. If we look at this chronologically, this is the first mention of the church. And if you think about it through the book of Matthew, uh, uh, chapters 11 and 12 spoke about the kingdom. Jesus was offering the kingdom to Israel if they would repent, but they did not repent. 
and they did not recognize him as their Messiah. He was hidden from them, and so according to God's sovereign plan, there would be another coming of the Messiah. And there would be a period between these two comings of the Messiah, and in this period, there would be the church. And this church, Jesus calls my church, it belongs to him. The word church here in Greek is ekklesia. It's another Greek word that I, I think you should know, ekklesia. And that comes from two Greek words, ek meaning out of, and kaleo is to call. And so this is the idea here is to call out. And it was used of gathering soldiers who were called out by name and, and would kind of form into their company. And so a gathering of soldiers, and then it came to be used just for any gathering. The ecclesia was any gathering of people together, and it was used in the Old Testament as well to speak about the congregation of Israel. But this word for a gathering really takes on a special meaning here when Jesus refers to this gathering as a people that he will build. Now, when we think about a church, often we think about a building. But the, the Greek word ekklesia, there's, there's no sense of a building here. This, this word has nothing to do with a building. It's really a gathering of people. And so we could think of this, and, and why don't you turn there as well. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse nine, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so the church is these people, those people who have been called out of darkness into God's saving light. We are those who have received mercy. We are the people of God in this age. You were once not a people, but now you're the people of God. And so this is the this picture of the church. This is a, a people for his own possession, the people that God, the Lord Jesus, has called out of darkness into his light, and they are a people that gather in his name. And normally, the church is spoken of in regards to local gatherings of believers. And so we have the church in Ephesus, or the churches of Macedonia, or the church in Thessalonica. And these are local churches. Grace Bible Fellowship is a local church in Lacrete. But Jesus doesn't say here that he's going to build his churches in the plural. He says he's going to build a church, my church, singular. And this one church is what we call the universal church. And this universal church began on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people were added to the church. And you'll notice if you go back to our text in Matthew 16 that it's future. That the, the church is future. I will build my church. It will be built on Peter. And so there's this, this future sense. There's this gathering of people that the Lord is going to, 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 to gather and save. But yet it's still future in Matthew chapter 16. 
Now, I told you that Matthew 16 is the first place chronologically where the church happens. We see it again in Matthew 18. I'm not going to go there right now. But we see it for the first time used, or the really the third time then in Scripture, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 11, where it says there, And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. Now, this church is also called the body of Christ. And to see that, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, look, starting at verse 22, it says there, And he, God the Father, put all things under his feet. His there is Christ. And so God the Father put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so the Father exalted Christ to this place above all things, and then he gave Christ to the church. You see that there? He gave him as head over all things. He gave him to the church. And the church is his body, and then he is the head over all things, but he is also head over the church. And we see that in Ephesians 5, if you just, or sorry, chapter 4 and verse 15, Where Paul says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so Christ is the head of the church. The church is his body. And we see that again in in chapter 5 in verse 23. Where Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. And so Christ is head. He is the savior. We are his body. He is the leader of the church. That's the idea of head. He is the savior of the church. And I want you to turn to another passage here. You might want to keep your finger in Ephesians. We're going to come back here. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. Important verses here. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. This this verse tells us how we come into the body of Christ. Those of us who are part of this one body, this church, as we've seen it was called, we were baptized into it, not by water, but by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has immersed us into Christ and into his body. He has joined us together with Christ. And and so what we see here in verses 12 and 13 is an illustration of salvation. Salvation unites us to Christ and to one another in this body of which Christ is the head. And so salvation joins us to this universal church, which makes us one with Christ and makes us one with everyone else who is in Christ. And so we are this one body. The church is this people then 
that Christ is building. We are those who have been made to drink of the one spirit. We are those who have the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ. We are those who have been joined to Christ. Or if you go back to Ephesians, we are those who have been made alive with Christ. And Christ is our leader. He is our head. And we are a people growing in every way into him who is the head. And Christ is washing us with the word, Ephesians 5, 26. He's making us increasingly holy as we continue to behold his glory. We are being transformed into the same image. And we are a people that belong to him. We are a, a people of his own possession, 1 Peter 2, 9. We are a people redeemed from all lawlessness, purified for himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, Titus 2, 14. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so I hope here that you're getting this picture of a saved people, a people whose spiritual eyes have been opened to see Jesus Christ and beholding him, they're being transformed from one degree of glory to another by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this people is the church, the bride of Christ. And through them, God is glorified. Through them, God is revealed. And by them, God is worshiped. And on earth, this is the people through whom God works to save others and to add them to the church. And through them and through their gatherings, God also works to reveal Christ and then further transform them into his image. And so what God is doing on the earth right now, in this age, he is doing it in and through the church. And, and really nowhere else, if you think about it. There's, there's nowhere else. There's no other institution like this. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to build my church and I'm going to build a bunch of other things. He's going to build his church. And he, and he saves these people and he sanctifies these people and he builds his church through his church. And this church is universal. It includes every saved person from Pentecost to the second coming of Christ, whether they are in heaven or on earth. And so we are one body, even with the saints who have gone before us and are in heaven. But on earth, this church is manifested in local gatherings. Remember, the word means gathering. Local gatherings of genuine believers who gather in obedience to Christ. And we gather in these local churches to preach and listen to the word of God and to take the Lord's Supper and to, to do the ordinance of baptism. And we gather for fellowship and for prayer and for reading of the word of God. And we gather to be equipped to serve the Lord in this world. And we gather to worship. This is the nature of the church. And so there's this universal church, but it exists, it's manifested on earth in these local gatherings, and through these local gatherings, Christ is, is building his people that are going to one day dwell with him forever and even be presented to him as his bride. And so let's go now and see the victory of the church in, in section C and E. And we see this in the, in the positive statement in verse 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church. There's the victory of the church in a few words. I will build my church. But we also see it in the negative statement, and the gates of hell shall not prevail 
against it. And really, all we would need is the positive. All, all we need is that positive side. Whatever the gates of hell shall not prevail, it means it, it almost doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is going to build his church. And that implies that nothing is going to stop it. But the negative side makes it even more emphatic. Nothing is going to stop Christ in what he purposes to do, starting with Peter and then really expanding across the whole world. And so he's going to do it starting with Peter. He's going to then spread through the other apostles as well. And then through the church of all ages, he is going to continue to build his church until the end of the age. And that's why the Great Commission says this again, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That last section there, I am with you always to the end of the age, is shows us that Jesus is with us, and he's building his church through us as we're faithful to the Great Commission. In other words, Jesus is so powerful that he can build this body of people through fallible people like Peter and like us. And just like the Father revealed Christ to Peter, so he's going to reveal Christ to others through us by his word. And these people will become disciples and they will follow Christ and they will learn to observe all that he commanded because they'll be drawn by the Father, regenerated by the Holy Spirit and made alive with the Son. And let me just show you another verse that supports this. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Such great verses here in 1 John 5. Really 1 to 4, 1 to 5, some of my favorite verses, but let's just start at verse 3 here. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why? For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so I guess what I just want you to see here is the the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new birth changes our lives. We keep his commandments and they're no longer burdensome because of this new birth. And so we have this victory that we overcome the world by this faith. And so Jesus is going to build his church through the church as we're faithful to the Great Commission. Now, let's look at the negative side here. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the gates of hell is is more literally the gates of Hades. And so we ask ourselves, well, what what is this? The gates of Hades. Now, the, the ESV, I don't know why they translated the gates of hell, but they must understand this as a some kind of a metaphor for Satan and his domain. And a lot of commentators, some commentators anyways, take it this way. And the idea then is that in this case is that Jesus is, is picturing the church as this victorious army and we're, we're breaking into Satan's realm, overcoming his gates and, and taking his subjects captive and making them obedient 
to Christ. And for Jesus to build his church, this, this is true. This is exactly what he's going to do. The devil is never going to be able to keep one of those whom Jesus' father gave to him. Remember Jesus said in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And again in verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And I think that's true as far as it goes, but I don't think it's exactly what Jesus is saying here. But there's not going to be one person that the devil or hell or or any created thing is going to be able to, to keep back from the kingdom from salvation if they've been given to Jesus by his father. But Hades is not the devil's territory, nor is hell, nor is Gehenna. Hades is, is more literally just the place of the dead. And Hades translates the Hebrew word Sheol, which also speaks about the grave or the place of the dead. And when we think about the gates of Hades, the gates were heavy wooded doors, often overlaid with bronze, and and so they would be a a picture of strength. When Hezekiah thought that he was going to die in Isaiah 38.10, he says, I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. And so Sheol, the gates of Sheol, is really speaking about the place of the dead. Hezekiah is going to die and go to the grave. And on a few other occasions, the Old Testament speaks about the gates of death or the gates of Sheol. And the idea then here is that the power of death will not be able to stop the church. And so this is a promise that this people, the church, will not die. It's a promise of eternal life for us because Jesus overcame the grave on our behalf. And it's even a promise that Jesus' own death will not be the end for him and that he can be with us until the end of the age. And so our living Lord, the Son, remember the Son of the living God, he is going to build his church and even death won't stop him. And if death won't stop him and and really the the strength of death, the gates of death won't stop him, then nothing is going to stop him. And this is the victory of the church. And so we've seen then this morning the foundation of the church. We've seen the builder of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the nature of this church, this gathering of saved people. And we've seen the victory of the church, four astonishing realities about the church. And what we need to do now is to apply this to ourselves. We need to not only hear the word and understand the word, but we need to apply it to our lives. We need to be doers of the word. And so what should we do or what should we believe or what should we think based on these truths about the church? And, and really, there's, there's really so much that we could say here. You know, we're not Peter, first of all. We're not Peter. We're not apostles. The foundation of the church, that's been laid. But the building of the church does continue. And Christ is still building his church. And it it is his people. It is his bride. And he is still the head of the church. And so we should realize that the church is Christ's goal. that, That it is his work. That it's his purpose in the world in this age. That it's his idea. This isn't a man-made thing as we gather here. This is God's plan. 
And it's the thing on earth that we can participate in to make a difference for eternity. It's the thing or the place where we can join with Christ to glorify God. Our worship and our service is to be for Christ and for his church. And when we minister to believers, we edify and strengthen and encourage the church. And when we proclaim the gospel in evangelism, we add new believers to the church, or really that's the goal. And so the Lord Jesus can and will work through us if we heed his word and if we follow the pattern that he gave us in his word. And so we should be encouraged that the Lord will build his church, even this local church through us. And he will still work through our human weakness, just like he worked through Peter's human weakness. And he will still work through our remaining sinfulness, just like he worked through Peter's remaining sinfulness. Not, not stubborn, rebellious sinfulness, but just the fact that we recognize that we are in this flesh and we still sin in this world. We are growing to be made like Christ. We're not perfectly and utterly like Christ now. But that doesn't stop the Lord. He is going to work through us just like he worked through Peter. And so we should be devoted to Christ and, and his church like Peter was devoted to Christ and his church. And we should be obedient, disciple-making disciples of Christ who know that Christ is with us because we are walking with him. And we should do all things in the church according to the pattern that's given to us in the word of God. And finally, we should trust him that he will do what he promised. He will build his church through us, no matter how it looks, humanly speaking. We need to trust the Lord. If we are obedient and prayerful and trusting, disciple-making disciples of Christ, we will see Christ build his church through our lives. But as we think about that, don't forget what this church looks like. It's not a group of people that go to a building on Sundays It's a transformed people who love and obey Jesus Christ and one another. Christ will build his church. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this glorious truth that you will build your church, that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Father, we look to you to do that work through us. We recognize that, that much like Peter and even, even in greater ways than Peter, we are so far from what you would have us be. And yet we recognize as well that we are saved people and that you are transforming us and growing us to be like Christ. And so we pray that, that you would work through us, that heaven would work on earth through this local church. And that you would glorify yourself through our church and through all true churches across the world. And that you would gather this people. We, we just really all we can say is we thank you that you will gather this people. But we pray that you would use us to be a part of it. That we might glorify you on the earth. And we look forward to that day when we will be with you in heaven. When we will be the, the, the one body presented to Christ, this pure body without spot or wrinkle, this pure bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to love and honor your bride on earth now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.